Okay, well, it's now that time for us to jump back into the Gospel of John. We're going to be diving into John chapter 18, picking up where we left off a number of weeks ago. Uh, but before we look at our text, um, I, our text this morning is actually, it's, it's quite a big chunk of scripture that we're going to be looking at, and it's, it's weighty, it's heavy. And so I thought before we dove into that, we could have a little moment of uh, laughter together. You may have heard one or another stories uh, like this over the last number of years, but there have been uh, multiple stories coming out in recent years of botched art restorations. These were uh, people who's, who maybe uh, inflated their credentials a little bit. Somehow they got themselves in a position of restoring a classic piece of art and it didn't always go as planned. So I want to show you a few of these. Um, you're going to see them on the screen. The first is Bartolome Esteban Murillo's Immaculate Conception Painting. And you can see it first as it, uh, a pre-restoration and then... Uh, now post-restoration, if, if indeed you want to call it that. Uh, the second one is the 1930 fresca by Elias Garcia Martinez. Again, pre-restoration and, uh, and now post. It just, it just gets worse and worse, doesn't it, friends? And lastly, the 500-year-old statue of St. George... And this is uh, displayed in the church of San Miguel of Estella in Navarra, Spain. And again, pre-restoration and, uh, and post. Uh, apart from just being really funny and, and somewhat sad, uh, what's happened to these uh, pieces of art, the, these botched restorations raise some really interesting questions for me. Questions like, who has the right or who has the authority uh, to authorize a restoration and to choose who the restorer is going to be. Like, who has the, the power to do that? Or, or similarly, who, who bears the guilt when a restoration like this does not go according to plan? Who's responsible uh, for that? Lastly, and perhaps like the, the, the most philosophical of all these questions, is like, what, what is art? At what point is, is this uh, person's artwork, when this terrible restoration uh, takes place, at what point is it no longer their art and somebody else's uh, uh, terrible interpretation? Like, what, what is it? Like, where, where's the truth in all of that? And on a more serious note, friends, as I said, our text this morning we see all of these themes, all of these kind of questions swirling in and around our, our passage, in and around the story of Jesus' arrest and trial. We see questions or the themes of power and authority. Who has it? The theme of, of guilt and the theme of truth. What is truth? Who possesses truth? And so, uh, as we prepare to look, to dive into our text, I'd invite you to open there. It's John chapter 18. We're going to start at verse 1. A couple of, of context notes for you. Uh, a number of weeks ago now, back in the summer, when I was teaching, we, we started John chapter 13, which signaled a transition from Jesus' public ministry to his private ministry, out with the crowds to in the upper room with just his disciples, his close followers. Well, we see another transition uh, this morning, and it's a transition from 
uh, from dialogue or really monologue, Jesus speaking to his disciples and praying for them at the end there, to, to narrative, to story. One commentator said, in some ways, it's, it's from theology to history. And just by way of reminder, just of, of where we've left off, a number of weeks ago before our vision series, Dave uh, took us through the high priestly prayer in John 17. And we heard Jesus' prayer for his disciples and also prayers for us, uh, the church today as well. And I want to highlight one, one particular verse from that prayer in John chapter 17. Here's what Jesus says. This is John 17 verse 19. For their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. For their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Now, consecrate's not a word that is too uh, common in in today's vernacular, but, uh, and it can mean a a number of different things, but here, Jesus is committing himself to the will of God the Father, knowing full well what this will entail for him, that it will ultimately lead him to the cross. But he does it for the sake of our salvation. And this prayer, friends, is a remarkably powerful picture of what was going to come in in the the following hours and what Jesus' role in those events would be. And so before we we really jump into our text, I would invite us to do as we always do, to take a a moment to pause, to uh, see how you're feeling and to invite the Spirit into that place with you and then we will uh, jump into our passage together. All right, as I said already, we see these three themes woven in and through our passage this morning. The theme of power or authority or control, the theme of guilt, and the theme of truth. We see these themes weaving throughout this story and often they're found in the places that we'd least expect them. And so what I want, us, what I want you to do to start is uh, to read this passage for yourself. As I said, it's quite, quite a big chunk that we're going to be covering this morning. And so I'd really invite you to read this because as I said, we're going to trace these themes throughout the text. So it's good for you to have the whole story in your mind as we do that, okay? So uh, either open a Bible, uh, pull out your phone, or just if you're watching this on a computer, you can just Google John chapter 18. So start with John 18 verse 1 and read all the way to John chapter 19 verse 16. And then we'll, uh, we'll talk about this text together. So go ahead and read. Okay, let's dive in. First, I want us to explore the theme of power together. Clearly, we see in this story a struggle for power and control. In fact, in in many ways, it was uh, 
the cause of the Jewish opposition uh, to Jesus was their fear of Jesus' growing power. And so I'd ask the question, in the story that you just read, who wields the greatest power? Who has the most authority? You know, there'd be probably a number of uh, likely candidates, right? Maybe we'd want to say first off that, well, maybe it's Annas, right? Annas is, uh, after all, the first person that Jesus is brought to after his arrest. Now, it's confusing the way that the label of high priest gets used in, in this passage. And let me try and clarify that a little bit for us. The position of high priest uh, in the eyes of, of uh, the Jewish authorities and, and the Jewish community was an appointment for life. And so Annas had been appointed to that position. But under the authority of the Romans, at different moments, the Romans would uh, depose one high priest and install another who happened to be more to their liking. And indeed, that had happened. And so Caiaphas was currently the, the officially recognized uh, high priest uh, in terms of the Roman view. Uh, but many in that community in, in Jerusalem there would have, would have recognized Annas as still fulfilling that role because after all, it was an appointment for life. And Annas had an additional sort of level of authority over Caius as his father-in-law. And so we'd say, well, it's got to be Annas, right? He's brought to him first. He's, he's uh, the official uh, or the, certainly from the, the religious point of view, the true high priest. And yet as we look at the story a little bit more, we realize that perhaps he doesn't have quite the authority that we would have assumed. I mean, after all, as I already mentioned, he was deposed by the Romans, right? And had a, uh, his son-in-law installed. Uh, he also was conducting this trial against Jesus in a completely illegal manner on a whole number of levels. Just to name a couple of those, uh, he begins the proceedings at night, something that was strictly forbidden in, in Jewish law. Initially, at least, he's the sole judge presiding over the case. Again, not permitted. And lastly, Annas tries to force Jesus to testify against himself, something that the accused under Jewish law were not required to do. And in fact, it's Jesus in in, uh, John chapter 18, verse 19, Jesus is pushing back on that. Let's read it together. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. And so, you know, on an initial reading, it might seem like Jesus is, is being evasive or just, just being difficult in this moment. But, but actually, he's letting Annas know that he won't simply be carried along in these, uh, this sort of unjust manner of, of going about this trial. If Annas wants to try Jesus, he's going to need to do it in the proper way using witnesses. And so sure enough, when Annas realizes that Jesus isn't going to perhaps play along the way he had hoped, he, he hands him off to his son-in-law Caiaphas. And so then we say, maybe Caiaphas, maybe Caiaphas wields the greatest authority in this story. After all, he's the high priest recognized by Rome. But again, we don't get quite as much detail in John's gospel. But if we look into the other gospels, we realize, ah, actually, maybe Caiaphas doesn't have quite as much authority as, as we would have thought either. In the Gospel of Mark, uh, we're, we're told that Caiaphas, again, there's this 
deep, strong, high importance of, of witnesses in Jewish uh, trials. You had to have uh, at least two or more witnesses, and they had to agree on the full facts of the case. They couldn't simply testify to, to one aspect and then have another witness testifying to another. They had to agree on the whole facts of the case. And Caiaphas, though he can bring together many false witnesses, he can't find any that can agree can't find two that have completely the same testimony. And it's only in sort of this last ditch effort as he steps in and tries to bind Jesus by this, this solemn oath that he gets Jesus to, to, to acknowledge his own identity. And then, in perhaps the greatest irony, or the greatest sort of blow to Caiaphas's authority, in the end, in a capital case like this, where the Jews were, were seeking uh, an execution, they had to go to the Roman authorities anyway. They didn't have the power under Roman rule to, to execute that uh, sentence themselves. And so then we're, we're left saying, well, it must be Pilate then. Surely Pilate has the greatest authority in this story, the most power. After all, he's, uh, he represents Rome, the highest authority in the land at that time. He certainly got the biggest uh, stick on his side, the Roman authority at his disposal. And we don't get this from the text, but historically we, uh, we learn that Pilate enjoyed uh, wielding his power um, when he got the opportunity. One, one story that depicts this was upon Caiaphas's, or excuse me, Pilate's arrival in Judea, he actually sent a contingent by night into Jerusalem to erect flags and symbols depicting Caesar. Now, this was something that was so deeply offensive to the Jewish community there in Jerusalem that other Roman authorities had avoided doing it altogether. And yet Pilate, he seems to know that it's going to be offensive because he sends this group to do it at night, um, but he does it anyway. And sure enough, when there's protests, when there's uprisings against what he's done, he uh, rounds up all the protesters and just threatens to execute them all. And so we'd say, well, surely Pilate is the one exercising the most authority here. And yet as we dig into the text further, we even question that. Again, looking, if we look at Matthew's gospel, you don't have to turn there, but we realize that Pilate's own bedroom, perhaps a place where we like to feel that we're most sort of that, if anywhere we have, you know, control there, right? Like safety there. Pilate's own bedroom had been invaded when he gets a note from his wife saying that she's been troubled by these dreams over the injustice that's befalling Jesus. To Pilate's credit, when the Jews come to him uh, asking him to pronounce a sentence on Jesus, he does require that they go through proper Roman proceedings. So that included an indictment, what are the formal charges against Jesus, and an examination a defense, and a verdict. Pilate does indeed go through all those steps, despite the, the Jewish authorities just looking for a quick rubber stamp uh, from, from Pilate. And the end result of those proceedings, though, is that he finds Jesus innocent. Look at verse 38. John 18, verse 38. After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews, this is referring to Pilate, and told them, I find no guilt in him. And actually, he proceeds to declare Jesus' innocence twice more. But ultimately, ultimately, he bends to the will of the mob, releases Barabbas, a known criminal, back onto the streets, 
beats an innocent man, Jesus, within an inch of his life, and then hands him over for execution. Pilate gets bent to the will of others, perhaps not as much power as we thought. And so as strange and illogical as it seems, when we really stand back and look at this story, we slowly realize that the one who wields the greatest authority in this narrative is Jesus. It's Jesus. It begins right back with that prayer that we mentioned at the start in the upper room, before all of this begins. For their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Jesus entered into these events that we're reading about that would lead to his crucifixion, fully aware of the outcome. And then this display of authority continues in this remarkable way in the garden, in this little moment that only John's gospel records. Look with me at John chapter 18, verse 3. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. What is happening here? You know, we might want to chalk this up to this raiding party uh, filled with adrenaline at the task that they've been given, um, this arrest that they're going to make by night. Again, not something that was uh, strictly legal by, by Jewish law. Maybe they're, they're, it's dark and they're a little bit unsure of their target's identity and maybe even more unsure of his guilt. And then I actually think it, we can't contribute it to either one of those elements I think there's this group that knows actually who Jesus is or at least knows some things about him and is perhaps afraid at the power that they've heard that Jesus has. And so when they show up there in the garden in the dark and all of a sudden they hear the name of God spoken with calm authority, they're terrified. See, what we miss in our translation there is that when Jesus says, I am he, he's actually saying, ego I am he, the I am the name of God, and they draw back in in fear, in terror. And then Jesus, and then he even has the confidence to make a command. It's me you want, let these men go. And they do it, they obey. But in the very next moment, it's so interesting, we see the world's the world's distribution of, of authority try and kind of reassert itself. You know, it's like, it's like there's this, this glitch in the system that's trying to be fixed, right? And this actually comes from one of Jesus' own. Peter senses, well, it looks like we're, we're gearing up for a fight here, and he draws his sword. Look at, look at verse 10. And then Simon Peter, having his sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. That's sort of the worldly way of power and authority, right? Whoever, like, might is right, 
The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? See, Jesus calmly assures Peter that though it might seem like he's being caught unaware, in fact, he is keenly aware of and prepared for what is to come. And Jesus' display of of calm authority continues. In his first trial with Annas, that passage that we already recognize, where Jesus points out the illegality of the way that Annas is trying to go about those proceedings. But it really culminates with Pilate, with Jesus' interactions with Pilate. Look at verse 36. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I've come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who's of the truth listens to my voice. You see, Jesus understands sort of the, the narrowness of Pilate's inquiry. Pilate really wants to know, are you a threat to my rule and by extension to Roman rule, to Caesar's rule? Jesus says, my kingdom isn't anything like Caesar's, but this does not mean that it has no bearing on you, Pilate. In fact, it has all the bearing in the world on you. But we'll get to that again in a moment. And one final, the final statement of Jesus to Pilate, at least recorded in John's gospel, verse 11. Uh, John chapter 19, verse 11. Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Jesus understood, friends, that from start to finish, God was in control of this process. This was his father's plan, which he was willingly submitting himself to. And he, as God the Son in human flesh, was not a pawn in some scheme that he didn't understand. He was willingly consecrating himself for you and I. Let's turn now to the theme of guilt in in our story. From the outset, it's clear that a desperate attempt is being made to pin guilt on Jesus. And yet it's through this, frankly, this mockery of justice that Jesus' innocence is proven And the guilt of everyone around him is made terribly apparent. This is pretty clear with Annas and Caiaphas leading a completely, presiding over completely illegal proceedings. That extends to the Sanhedrin as well, which was meant to be the highest court in the land because they endorsed what was really a a, a sham of a trial and stood by and allowed it to happen. And it carries on to Pilate. Pilate incurs guilt in our story for allowing this miscarriage of justice. And Pilate seems to to sense the weight of of what he's doing. Because in in Matthew's gospel, we read about a really empty or futile gesture where Pilate tries to, uh, he washes his hands, symbolically washing his hands of Jesus' blood. And yet it's Pilate that found Jesus innocent and and uh, condemns him to death. So we don't really need to be told of the guilt of of these characters in the story. That's readily seen. But it's not just them who incur guilt in the narrative we're we're looking at 
Jesus' very disciples have their own wrongs to bear. We're told in the Gospels that the disciples quickly, way back in the garden, turn tail and flee into the darkness. We want to immediately turn our attention to Peter and his failures, and and certainly we'll look at those. But remember that only he and John, who recorded these events, only he and John even had the courage to try and follow Jesus at all. The rest simply fled and abandoned him. But let's think about Peter. I think it's no mistake, friends, that all four Gospels record Peter's breakdown and denial of Jesus. Peter was, after all, in many ways, the leader of this band of disciples. He was full of zeal. If you've spent any time in the Gospels, you know that Peter's problem wasn't generally holding back or being hesitant. It was being brash, speaking too soon, acting too soon. And sure enough, he swore to Jesus that he would never abandon him. He was the one, in fact, ready to go to battle. He was the one who drew his sword back there in the garden and made sort of a a careless swing. And so in many ways, Peter, we'd expect a lot of things from him, but we wouldn't expect a denial. And yet that's what we read about. Look at chapter 18, verse 25, the, the second and third of Peter's denials. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, those standing around, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Even Peter, the disciple that by all appearances we'd expect faithfulness from, lies about his relationship with Jesus, abandoning his friend in the process. Even Peter incurs guilt in our story. But if we're going to consider the theme of guilt in this story, there's one final character that we need to look at, and that's the character of Barabbas. Look at uh, chapter 18, verse 39. Pilate is speaking here to the Jewish authorities gathered there, the crowd. He says, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Speaking of Jesus. They cried out again, not this man, Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber, John tells us. And again, we don't get all of these details from John's gospel, but when we piece together the the accounts of of all four gospels, we get a pretty rough picture of Barabbas. He's called a notorious prisoner, a murderer, and an insurrectionist. And so Pilate makes this gamble. See, out of a desire to, to, to somehow satisfy justice, he believes Jesus is innocent, and respond to these troubling, uh, this troubling note he's received from his wife, but then also, you know, sort of concede to the pressure of this mob. He, he comes up with what he thinks is a clever strategy. Surely the crowd presented with these options of, of two people to release. Surely they'll choose Jesus over this notorious murderer, Barabbas. And yet, they choose to release Barabbas. And the substitution is made 
That friends, in this moment with Barabbas, we see played out physically, tangibly, what is true for all of us spiritually. Barabbas' guilt, agreed upon by all, was passed to the only one that day who was truly guiltless, Jesus. And Jesus accepts it. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I consecrate myself for them that they may be sanctified in the truth, as Jesus prayed. And so finally, let's think about that final theme, the theme of truth. As we've already seen through the exploration of this text, text that we've done so far, many of the characters in the story have a funny relationship with the truth. Jesus himself made a bold claim about his relationship to truth earlier on in his ministry. You probably know what I'm thinking of. John 14, verse 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus makes bold claims throughout the course of his trials, too, in regards to truth. Look back to chapter 18, verse 22. See, this is just after Jesus has told Annas, hey, you really should be calling witnesses, not asking me to testify against myself. When he had said these things, verse 22, when he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, if what I say is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? And we're not surprised to read that it's in that moment that Annas dismisses Jesus to Caiaphas. But again, the most interesting exchange around this theme happens in Jesus' conversations with Pilate. Look at chapter 18, verse 37. We've already read these verses. So Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king, for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who's of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? In the boldness of this claim, Jesus shows that his kingship, yes, he is indeed a king, and his kingship, his kingdom has bearing on so much more than simply Pilate's responsibility to Rome. Jesus' kingship has actual bearing for all people for all time. And in this moment, they trade places. Jesus takes up the role of judge with Pilate on trial. Yes, I am a king. I'm actually a king sent from heaven. My rule and reign are established by God. They are true. And he makes an invitation to Pilate. If you want to follow the truth, you'll follow me. D.A. Carson says, explains it this way in his commentary. He says, disclosing the truth of God, of salvation and of judgment, was the principal way of making subjects, of exercising his saving kingship. But Pilate 
tragically, like so many in our world today, in this moment, friends, in which you and I live, is not ready to make Jesus king, is not ready to concede authority and power to Jesus. And thus he makes what has turned out to be a, a classic and enduring dodge or evasion. He asks the question, what is truth? That's a question that so many today, friends, use to evade the Christian story. Use to uh, sidestep the gospel message. See, we, we declare boldly as followers of Jesus that a man who lived 2,000 years ago was God in flesh. And that out of trust in his heavenly father's plan and a love for you and I, he willingly endured an unjust trial and execution. And that through his sacrifice and only through his sacrifice is the way for our guilt to be removed. That is an objective truth. It is a knowable one. And it requires a decision, friends. The, the question, well, what is truth, won't suffice. And so we have a response to make. If you're with us in this moment and you've never considered your response to Jesus. I'd invite you to submit to his kingship, to make him Lord and receive the free gift that he offers of, of taking our place. But there's a response if, we're, if you're a follower of Jesus as well. See, as Christians in this cultural moment that we live in, we can sometimes balk at the fact that Jesus made such bold, objective, exclusivist claims. I mean, come on, Jesus. Don't you know that people don't do that anymore? Each person's truth is their own. Or perhaps sometimes we hide from this eternal, complicated mystery that God sometimes chooses to work out something good from painful sometimes even unjust circumstances. And so we, as followers of Jesus, have a choice. We can trust in God, our Father, as Jesus did, humbly declare the truths of the gospel and live lives motivated by love, or we can deflect, minimize, avoid, deny the response in many ways that we see from Peter. And invite us to trust that no matter how upside down things can seem, that God is in control and that he's working things out for good. Let's pray. Jesus, we are uh, amazed that even in this miscarriage of justice that we've read about in, this, in our time together, that you were still calmly in control, that you were willingly submitting yourself on our behalf, that we might be sanctified 
in the truth? Would we trust in moments today that seem like they're out of control? Trust that uh, you're on the throne and that you can work things out for good. Pray this in Jesus' name. Now, quickly, friends, I want us to hear a story uh, from someone in our church. But by way of introduction to that story, I want us to think once more quickly about Peter's denials. This is, I'll be honest with you, and it's important for me to say this, this is pure conjecture on my part, okay? But if we look at each of Peter's questioners who asked him about his relationship to Jesus, and we sort of compile their descriptions from all of the Gospels, it seems as though each of them has a relationship to Malchus, that servant of the high priest whose ear Peter cuts off in the garden. Now imagine that you were Malchus, sent out at night in this this raiding party to make this arrest. One of the followers of the man you're going to arrest strikes out with violence, cuts off your ear, and then the very man that you are sent to, to apprehend miraculously heals you. That's gonna cause, I would imagine, some apprehension about what you're involved in. And I have always wondered, questioned, if even one of the men or women who approached that Peter that night to ask him, aren't you one of his disciples? Didn't I see you with him? Wasn't actually coming threateningly, but was coming honestly. The way that Nicodemus approached Jesus, wanting to know who he was, sensing that there was something different. We don't know, friends. I don't know. But I've always wondered. But because Peter is so busy minimizing, denying, distancing, he never gets the chance to respond. And my prayer for us is that we would trust that God's in control and that maybe if we can be a presence in situations like the world is in right now where things seem upside down and we can trust that God is in control, that maybe God will bring opportunities for us to tell others about the truths of Jesus. And I want you to hear now one great story that's, I think, an example of this. You're going to hear from Avery Gray, who's a teacher. I think we can all acknowledge that this is a, a, a complicated, probably stress-inducing time to be a teacher. And yet Avery has chosen a position of trust and is trying to make herself available for God to use her. So hear this story now. 